So their their source for this is actually soy root nodules. So there's mm. like these little balls and soy root nodules. nodules. Just like mom used to make. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Science and technology. Welcome to It's Only Science, a podcast made in America by Discover Magazine. Not Discovery, not Discover Card, Discover Magazine. I don't know about you guys, but I still get an email probably like once every week or so where we're called Discovery. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's people in this company that call us Discovery. <laughs> and then it's always great when, you know, you get flamed on Facebook or something. It's like, I can't believe Discovery is posting stories like this. Uh-huh. And I'm always very tempted to say like, well, you might want to go to the Discovery Facebook page because this is Discover. Anyway, I digress. That could be a whole episode. Yeah, it's a rant. <laughs> Again, I'm your host, Carl Engelking, and I am joined today by fellow Discover Magazine colleagues, Allison Mackey. Hello. Bill Andrews. Hi. And Nate Sharping. Hey. So we've got a lot to get to in this episode, and I've already wasted enough time. For meat lovers, going vegan meant kicking the bloody satisfaction of biting into rare meats. The juicy, bloody goodness that makes your heart scream is hard to say goodbye to. <laughs> Somebody mm. likes me. <laughs> yeah. But maybe we don't have to say goodbye to that. Allison, of course, has more. And with age comes, comes wisdom, correct? I mean, that's what we've been told. My and dad thinks so. The more time we spend on the planet, the smarter we get. Each generation that comes into being is just that much more intelligent than the last one, correct? It makes sense logically on the surface. Bill, you'll dig into that for us. Can't wait. And Nate has been paying homage to one of the greatest science ambassadors known to man. And for the past several weeks, he's documented his everlasting mark on the tree of life. Who is that man and what mark has he left? You'll have to stay tuned. Isn't that right, Nate? I guess so. <laughs> I'm a hype man. <laughs> but first, That's right. first of all, you'll, you all have to listen to me for a bit longer because last episode I was challenged to come to the show and bring some sciencey tidbits about economics. That, of course, was the topic that I picked from our boredom bin, which we can discuss a little bit later. That's a perfect topic for you because his uh, Carl's nickname around the office is actually Super Cash. <laughs> yeah, this was about my first week on the job here, and we went out to have drinks to celebrate. And all I did was pay the bill with cash. Everyone else had cards, you know, d- confusing that can be. I paid with cash, a big pile of cash. <laughs> that's not, I think that's the key bit there. Yes, yeah. yeah. a, a large yes. pile of cash. <laughs> and the way you were just palming it so comfortably like you do it all the time. And I did toss it nonchalantly onto <laughs> the bill. Well, as it, it nicknames was... often go, I became super cash. Super cash. Super, super cash. cash, sorry. Right. Surprisingly, I'm starting a conversation off about economics with Albert Einstein. So a our, heavy hitter indeed. Yeah, our hero of science, Albert Einstein, who is enshrined on our make-believe Mount Rushmore of science. You recall our Heroes of Science issue. We, yeah. Our cover was the Mount Rushmore of Science, and, and that Mount Rushmore of Science Heroes is also available in a 550-piece jigsaw puzzle that is available on myscienceshop.com for the lower price of $13.99. Speaking Ooh, of economics. What a great deal. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just a plug there. And indeed, in a discussion about economics, that makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, if Einstein were alive today, he probably wouldn't have been a huge fan of that, that plug. That's because in 1949, he railed at length against capitalism in the socialist publication The Monthly Review. From the start in this column that he wrote, admitted that he was not an expert on the subject. And he asked rhetorically, could a non-expert weigh in on such matters? And his answer was, of course. 
So like you think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you're Einstein, you can weigh in on just about whatever you want. But to Einstein, he saw capitalism as a reflection of mankind's predatory phase, one of the last vestiges of our predatory sort of mindset. We conquer people, we take their land, we set the rules by which everyone plays by. And he claimed that socialism is kind of the next logical step for the advancement of human race. Instead of working to cut into each other or beat each other, we all work together. And that's a higher mm. level of thinking because humans are by nature social beings. And that was the central crisis that Albert Einstein saw with capitalism, is that humans are social beings. But unlike ants and bees who are dictated to get along without really thinking, uh, humans can get all these different ways of driving a wedge between the individual and society, whether it's culture, art, politics, religion, things that humans can uniquely create to divide society and put individuals off on their own. And as Einstein wrote, man can find meaning in life, short and perilous as it is, only through devoting himself to society. Instead, capitalism in his mind created the situation where we're all trying to beat each other. Uh, we want to beat someone to the promotion. We want to beat someone on price. We want to take market share. And he said this basically is the crippling of individuals, and that is the worst evil of capitalism. And he goes on in, in this es essay railing against capitalism. Unlimited competition, he writes, leads to a huge waste of labor and to that crippling of social consciousness of individuals. He acknowledges that there's, yeah, there's a, a lot of questions about how we go about creating an equitable society. Yeah. Why can't we just all get along? Yeah, man. <laughs> so your, your science bit of that is... is fact that Einstein's talking about economics. That's my science hook into economics. It's your opening salvo. You could say that Einstein felt that he was being screwed over. Capitalism is screwing people over. And that's a an idea that's deeply rooted in our very nature. Humans know when they're getting a raw deal. So to Einstein, maybe capitalism is a raw deal, but people hardly agree on whether socialism is the right answer. But one thing that we are finding is that humans aren't the only ones that can tell that they're being shafted. There's a classic experiment from Sarah F. Brosnan and Fran DeWall at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Georgia. They did an experiment like probably over 10 years ago now where they had two capuchin monkeys sitting in a cage. The researcher gave them a, a pebble and the monkey just had to give them the pebble back and then they got a slice of cucumber to eat. They did that a couple times. Both monkeys could see each other doing the activity, getting their reward. Then researchers threw a wrinkle into the system one of the monkeys handed him their pebble, they got a cucumber, but the other monkey handed the pebble back and got a grape, which is Ooh, much yeah, better than dumb. a cucumber. <laughs> and there's, the rich get richer, man. And you can see the, the monkey who is still getting cucumbers look over and see that payday. And the very next trial, he does the, the pebble trick, the researcher hands him another slice of cucumber, and he loses his shit. <laughs> he takes the cucumber. You can see video of this on the, on the, on the internet. You can just uh, look on YouTube for the fairness experiment monkeys and you'll find it he takes the cucumber and chucks it right back at the researcher and <laughs> those, those bourgeois pigs yeah sticks his arm out of the cage and starts pounding pounding mm -hmm. on the on the floor and stuff no more yeah they Exploited. give they do another trial they give the the monkey a grape but he gets another cucumber he takes a cucumber and chucks it back in one of the experiments he had the pebble in his hand he started like bashing the pebble onto the wall because he thought maybe that would help yeah well, handed the, the pebble power. back and kept getting cucumbers and he was flipping out like shaking his cage and stuff mm -hmm. the unfairness the researchers concluded that these dramatic reactions support an early evolutionary origin of inequality aversion mm. we don't like seeing inequality what did the monkey with the grapes say was he like well you know maybe i'm just better at, at grabbing he, pebbles than you are so he looked tomorrow. pretty chill he didn't look like he's really that concerned about his it's uh his problem co-cage mm -hmm. mate he's like he yeah man I, to worry. but it's not just monkeys dogs rats and other 
Uh, highly social mammal species have also been shown to have this sort of inequality detector. We don't like getting screwed, and a lot of animals don't like getting screwed either. Oh, my cats definitely have jealousy issues. <laughs> do they do they lose their shit? Uh, one of them, like he he's always watching to make sure that he's getting <laughs> equal equal pets. Like, are you <laughs> conducting experiments on your cats? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> one cat got the special cat brush tongue, and the other one didn't. That's how it starts. <laughs> Uh, and then I'll switch gears here a little bit, but uh, we all are working, we're all employed, and we all pay into a retirement account that we hopefully will cash in someday and live the high life. Um, or, you know, perhaps retire when we're like 80, 85. And oh, yeah, I'd settle for the life. <laughs> yeah. have, a, have a hell of a last year, you know. <laughs> but increasingly, a lot of the money that you are paying into your retirement account is being held in funds that are basically collections of stocks, but the decision on who or what buys and sells those stocks is increasingly going to computers um, and artificial intelligence algorithms that are getting fed data on the markets and selling different properties or companies that you own in your portfolios to help you maximize your returns, hopefully, on, uh, on the stock market. And there's two interesting approaches to this. One is a, a startup called Numeri. They introduced what's called the meta model. And it's pretty interesting. They basically crowdsource a bunch of finance data to data scientists all around the world. And what they do with the data actually from this hedge fund is they anonymize the data and they they standardize it. So the people who are crunching the numbers have no idea if this is like a finance company, if this is AT&T or if this is uh, Cisco, all the numbers are anonymized. And then they all punch the numbers to create models that best predict what's going to be happening in these scenarios that are basically masked. The models that do best in this blind math equation testing, uh, the ones who have the best predictive model get what's called numer numer, which is a sort of cryptocurrency. So these blind data scientists are getting paid for building highly predictive algorithms and models for data that they don't really know. Hmm. And then the hedge fund will take that and link that data back to the actual stocks or where that, that finance data came from and then buy stocks that way. So it's like blind testing to create these uh, machine learning models. So let's say if there's a model that's really good at predicting a utility stock, but not so good at like a finance stock, they can take those two models, overlap them into like a larger machine learning model and build a master algorithm for how to pick and choose stocks and manage their hedge funds. So the data scientists get paid. They succeed in sort of blinding the study and removing human bias. So, so they don't know which stocks to invest in, but whoever's no. at the other end of this yeah, getting this make information. Use of it. All they know is no. they're they're competing to create the best model and get to get paid that way. And then they have no idea how that money is being used or even what that data is associated with. Well, that makes sense because you don't want to have a placebo effect right. in terms of, well, this stock makes sense, so I'm going to make the algorithm kind of favor the other. They just don't know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're trying to cut that human bias out of decision-making mm. And so all then they the build those brains. models, stack them all up on each other, and um, continue to improve on it that way. And I guess it's been doing okay. I'm just imagining a future where, you know, maybe algorithms are running the whole stock market. You'd have to merge and they'll kind of converge to perfection, right? Well, what happens when all the all the algorithms are as good as they can possibly be? Well, well that's the, the that, stock market just kind of stall. Well that's, well, that's sort of why, you know, that's such a fascinating topic because the mm -hmm. second that one algorithm or model finds success and everyone flocks to it is the moment it'll be doomed by its own success because so everyone crowds to that same approach it becomes the exact same and you know it's a constant balancing it yeah someone also find the flaws or the places that it 
this model is overlooking. So it's it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool test in the long run to see if AI can actually create a benefit because as soon as a benefit is carved out in the market, it's already taken back down because it gets crowded and people all adopt the exact same thing. It sounds so like evolution, like, like yeah. the survival of the fittest and who's going to adapt the best and the quickest. Yeah, mm -hmm. we all talk about uh, AlphaGo and we all talk about like chess and those being real standard marks for how an AI can perform at human levels. But I think perhaps the stock market might be one of the greatest tests for AI. The most human right. creation yeah. of all. Well, it really is. I mean, we, we think it's scientific, but humans, that's where human irrationality and I mean, people's ambitions and, you know, every, disconnections from reality get reflected in. Oh yeah, every dipper spike. Yep. It's same as like the dot-com bubble, you know? Like any video footage I've ever seen of like the stock market floor. <laughs> it's just nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like yeah, even in just subjective assessments of what a company is, like an unethical company that will an AI pick up on something like that? I don't know. These are all unique tests. And another approach is one that's um, powered by IBM Watson. And it works in a similar way, but it, it analyzes news and blog posts, social media postings, all that stuff. And it's what's called a, an exchange traded fund, which is a collection of stocks. It's called the AI powered equity fund. And you can actually invest in this now and Basically, it uses Watson to crunch a bunch of unstructured data. That's data that doesn't have any rules associated with it, like uh, just reading a bunch of blog posts or finance reports and building some connections and patterns in that data and then picking stocks. So in this fund, there's uh, Amazon, Google, NVIDIA, Forest City Realty Trust. Um, so its ticker is AIEQ. But yeah, they basically have turned over all of the selection bias to, to AI. It can continually rate how it's performed based on its predictions and then what actually happened and then make adjustments. The algorithm itself will, will make new adjustments. So the more it does this, the better it isn't potentially that, gets. Isn't that like insider trading though? Like I'm going to really screw up next week. So I'm, I'll make a lot of money during that. And then everyone else like, well, no, cause it's only like a fund that's like picking stocks. So you would buy this and then you just hope that it continues to pick the right. But like if Watson really wanted to make some money, Oh yeah, I mean, I mean there's the potential for that. Wasn't, Correct. Wasn't Watson originally supposed to go into like the medical field and and help doctors, and then mm -hmm. it, it instead went to Wall Street and make money? It's just like my college roommate. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it. Well, they're uh, they're based. Uh, Watson and IBM are doing like a pretty good marketing blitz to make sure that they can have their cloud services in all sorts of different industries. So they're in healthcare, they're in finance, they're they're finding different ways to get Watson involved in mm. things. Like we talk about it like it's a person. Like, oh. <laughs> well, yeah. He's doing so great these days. There's going to be, there's so gonna be like four AIs yes. that are going to control everything. Like. Are, are you That's a Watson or are you a... Yeah. Team Watson. Hashtag Team Watson. <laughs> All the way. I love seeing him on Jeopardy. That was entertaining. <laughs> team Deep Dream. <laughs> oh. Dogs all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you could imagine the, the, the benefits of being able to read a million news articles every single day and... In, like basically analyze every single financial statement that's come out of a company for its entire history yeah. <laughs> like in a in a minute you know we can't do that so it's a bit frightening we'll see if it has any advantages you i know you you dabble in the stock market carl have you yeah taken was, an interest in any of these ai I was just gonna ask. nah because they also come with expense expenses oh, and fees so expensive? the fees on it are a little high and I don't know if it's a gimmick or not at this point, but I am curious to see how it goes. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm keeping an eye on it, but you can't see the black box. You don't know yeah, what it's actually rated. you got to trust so. a lot. Um, and then the last thing, just real quick, I wrote about this earlier this week on Discover. Uh, Amazon Go, you probably heard, has opened its automated grocery store. In Seattle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Amazon Go. You can just 
walk it, scan your your account on your smartphone and just walk in and grab stuff, walk out, it'll charge you. Well, back in 1937, Clarence Saunders had, um, he was the founder of Piggly Wiggly. Shop the pig. Yeah. Well, they were a huge deal back in the early uh, 20th century. They were the ones who actually invented the like store aisles in a grocery store because really? when you went, yeah, when you would go to the grocery store back in the day, there'd be a, a clerk behind the counter who would grab all your stuff for you and then bring it out for you. You gave him a list and he'd fill your bag. What Piggly Wiggly did was they created aisles for people to shop and pick up their own items. Kind of like having someone go get all my groceries for me. Yeah. Just go back to the 30s. He wanted to, you know, cut down some costs overhead and you didn't need as many clerks then if people were collecting their own groceries. He had a little trouble with Wall Street. He tried to corner the market. There's a famous story about him trying to screw a bunch of short sellers in his stock. It's kind of a legend on Wall Street. He failed and he got his pants handed to him and he owed like tens of millions of dollars. So Piggly Wiggly broke up. He had to give the pants back. <laughs> yeah. Yep. He did not take the pants. He got really close, but he, he didn't quite succeed. But, you know, like a good capitalist story, he rose from the ashes and he opened these stores called Kidoozle, which was an automated oh, yeah. grocery store. There's it, one of those in every city these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in 1937, he opened Kidoozle in Memphis. And basically, customers had this giant key and all the the items were behind like glass shelves and customers would stick their item into the key, pull a trigger for how many they wanted of each item, pull their key back and it would punch the information into a piece of tape, paper mm. tape. Then the paper tape would be fed through the machinery that the store is created with and all the items would sh- go down a chute and they'd be sent down a conveyor belt and boxed for you at the door. Wow. Wow. An automated grocery store. Huh? Way back amazing. in 1937, yeah. That's like the Man kind of... Man ahead of his time. Yeah. The kind of whimsical thing you'd see in a Wes Anderson movie or something. Yeah. yeah. It was basically a giant vending machine. Uh, it, it didn't work that well because the mm. machines were pretty complex. They were, like, they were custom designed, so all of this stuff had never been built before. So they... During peak times, too many people came in and the circuits would blow or the machine would break down. And the users. Yeah. And it turned out to be far more expensive to actually maintain the automating machine Mm -hmm. than what he actually saved in automating groceries. So Jeff Bezos was not the first one to attempt an automated grocery store. And it's really interesting because Key Doozle was a play on three words. Key does all. That was sort of their their tagline. Key Doozle sounds like a tech startup. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds very much in place for today. Key Doozle. And I found it interesting that Amazon Go, they had a three-word little mantra, just walk out. Mm. So that was like their their little catchphrase, just walk out. That's all you need to do at Amazon Go. And uh, I found it interesting given, you know, the success that Sa- Saunders had with his automated grocery stores and just a little, a little indication that maybe the machinery doesn't work for Amazon Go as well as they may have anticipated. Uh, there was a, I don't know if you saw, there's a CNBC correspondent who went through Amazon Go. Most of her items were checked out, but the technology missed her yogurt. So she basically stole from Amazon Go without even trying. On TV. Yeah. So if you think about it, if people who aren't even trying to steal are are stealing from your store, is all the uh, is the facial recognition software, the camera tracking, all the sensors on the shelves that can detect when you pick things up, is it all going to work or is it a complex machine that's a little too ahead of its time? Since we were on the topic of grocery stores, I want to switch it over to Allison, who actually got a bite. You actually literally bit into the future of vegan meat not too long ago. That's right. Um, she told me a little bit about what her experience was, and this should be fun. <laughs> yep, yep. So kill the suspense. <laughs> All right. Well, 
Um, some of you may, or guys may have heard in the last uh, couple of years this buzz about this new veggie burger that's been created that's been touted as a, a plant burger that bleeds. Because <laughs> that's um, what yes. we all want. Yeah. In our, <laughs> that's our food. That's what makes it taste better. I want my meat squirming and bleeding when I bite into it. <laughs> so, uh, but, but it's getting a lot of traction, and the way it's been created, it's very different from any other veggie burger on the market, and it's an interesting look at, at food science in general and where we could go in the future. Um, so in 2011, a professor of biochemistry at Stanford named Patrick O'Brown uh, decided to take a sabbatical, and he wanted to t tackle the idea of world hunger and sustainability. He tried to have a conference at first that wasn't going so well, so he ended up uh, getting some, a lot of money from a lot of investors and starting a company called Impossible Foods, which is now based out of California. And they have spent, uh, they spent five years studying a hamburger from, they said from cow to bun, basically like five mm. years digging into everything, like what makes meat meat, what makes it taste meaty, like what makes it smell like this. Straight and, dope on meat. <laughs> in the end, they've created this, this new sort of veggie burger, the, the Impossible Burger, that's now being rolled out at restaurants around the country. Uh, so when I heard that there was one in our town, I had to go try it, and I brought it so that you, you can all try it too. Oh. <laughs> we get to taste the Impossible so, Burger. So that's what's in the box. That's what's in the box. Mm. So You've when been we wondering. asked if it was move, if something would move from inside, and now I see we were close. close. Yeah, I mean, I don't see any blood leaking out of it. So it's, yeah. I say we uh, we give it a shot. Maybe maybe Allison gives us a little more background here, and then we, we dig into one of these things. I want to. My mouth is watering already. Some, some bloody veggie meat. Let's get this box out. <laughs> it's gonna be cold, unfortunately, probably. So what is the what is the cost of one of these patties? It it looks brown. It's got like the char marks on it. It looks right. looks like meaty. meat. It yeah. looks yeah. like meat. It, does. it even smells. It it's smells like uh, ground meat. They want to get it in in grocery stores, but it warms like a burger patty. It chars like a burger patty. It sizzles like a burger patty. <laughs> like bleeds like a burger. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I haven't eaten beef in almost twenty years. So it's hard for me to know how it compares. Oh, it really smells cooked. Yeah. It's, it's really like <laughs> off a grill. Wow. It looks, my it's nose, got the same sort yeah, of. can barely tell the difference. My nose is intrigued. All right, gentlemen, are we, here we go. It mm. looks like meat. <laughs> it tastes like meat. Yeah. Yeah. The mm -hmm. consistency is perfect. It's really savory. Yeah. Make sure you get some good chewing sounds. Mm -hmm. And mm. like, yeah, when it's in a whole burger too, like I went mm. out with a, my friend Casey who works here and he was, he just kind of stared at it uncomfortably it for the rest of dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, like, yeah. It's it's good. I'd I can imagine with the, the toppings and the seasonings and whatnot. Yeah, it's actually good by itself. Mm -hmm. It's more than I can say for some burgers I've had. I mean, if you swapped out my, my burger patty with this. I wouldn't know either. I couldn't tell. Mm -mm. Yeah. No. So what the hell is in this? What's going on here? What what kind of witchcraft yeah. is this? Now that we've all been poisoned, tell us what we have to do to get the end <laughs> Like I said, this team spent five years like studying beef extensively to the point where they wanted to recreate it like from the molecules up. So in order to do that, they used a technique called uh, gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy. Uh, they would heat up beef, which would release aromas that would bind to some fiber. And then the machine would isolate the different compounds that were uh, responsible for those smells. So basically they've got a fingerprint of every different aroma in beef now, and they use that to kind of, to create it. Because most of flavor is actually in, in your nose, like the scent of mm -hmm. things. Mm. Okay. 
basically some of the main components. They're using wheat protein for firmness and chewability. Potato protein allows it to kind of hold water and Mm. go from a soft to more solid state while cooking. They're using coconut oil with no flavor in it to add fat. But the the big secret ingredient that's caused some controversy is this thing called called heme, which is an iron-containing molecule in all of our blood that allows our blood to carry oxygen. Mm. Hence hemoglobin. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a basic building block of life in, in all organisms, including plants. Now, in animals, it's it's very prominent in, in animal muscles. Uh, there it's carried mm. by a protein called myoglobin. The myoglobin is what gives it the meaty taste in the... Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So they had to find a, a plant-based version of this. It actually is found naturally in a lot of uh, nitrogen-fixing plants and legumes. So their their source for this is actually soy root nodules. So there's mm, like these little balls and soy root nodules. nodules, just like mom used to make. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in order to like grow a bunch of soy roots and extract it, that would be very expensive and time consuming. So they're actually using genetic engineering. They actually took the the genes from the soy root nodules, put them into yeast, and grew that yeast and through a fer- fermentation process and then ex- went back and extracted it out. So that way they're able to create a lot of this, this heme at once without like growing tons and tons of soy plants and extracting it. Are oh, they used for yeast? Yes, the friendly yeast, they, they are like powerhouses. They can make whatever you splice into their genes. Yeah, so they claim like at, this is atom for atom identical to the heme molecule in meat. Wow. animal what, meat. What is it like then? Is it like, what do they get out of the yeast? Like red liquid? Or? Yeah, basically it oh, looks like, geez. it's like blood. That's where the blood came, comes from. It's Ooh. basically like synthetic cow yeast blood, blood. Like mm. made out of wow. plants. Wow. That's, that's unsettling. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people like, yeah. cool, I think. I it, mean, is, it is. I mean, synthetic cow blood, it's better than murdering cows for their blood. Yeah, how did it feel like eating it? Like eating meat that didn't come from a cow pretty cool i don't know like even as a, a longtime vegetarian if you grow up eating certain foods like you always kind of go back to that that mm. standard that you grew up with i feel like i don't if think I ate this for a deal. while i would forget what yeah you, exactly i could see you know, that's exactly this. what patrick o'brown wants you to do and in fact he said he designed this burger not for vegetarians but for meat mm-hmm. eaters because it's his goal to, looking forward he would like to see us on a planet where we don't have to slaughter animals for food and we can just yeah. And it's synthesized and created, and and it's so unsustainable, you know. The, yeah, exactly. The greenhouse gas emissions, the and amount of you know good water for the animals, it takes. it's good for us. And I would yeah. say the vast majority of people that eat meat don't eat meat because they know it was an animal that was killed. They just they want the flavor, yeah, they want yeah. the good. texture, exactly. the consistency. And so many of our recipes, you know, call for meat. That's, yeah, it's just the standard. It's, yeah, it's I have a quote. I have a quote from him actually from uh, an interview he did with the New York Times, where he said, uh, "The cow is never going to get better at making meat." It was not optimized for beef. It did not evolve to be eaten, which I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it didn't choose to evolve yeah. to be eaten. Well, well who, no one chooses to evolve. hand of natural anyway. selection may have pushed and He's it like, our burger was, we're always going to get better. So their ideas, they're going to like keep getting feedback and trying to make it even closer to beef until mm-hmm. we get to a point where you really can't tell the difference. Until it's better than beef, even. Yeah. Oh. Tastes like super beef. You don't have to add bacon, and it tastes like a bacon beef burger. But you can Ooh. just imagine big beef is going to raise hell about this. I mean, like you can't call this beef. Oh yeah, for sure. And and beef is a it's buffet. big big yeah. business in in this country mm-hmm. and around the world. Like, uh, yeah, there's actually a study came out. The USDA reported that they're expecting 2018 to be like a record-setting year in beef uh, <laughs> beef consumption. Like, uh, get ready, everybody. <laughs> 
they say uh, the average consumer will eat 222.2 pounds of red meat and poultry this year. Man, I'm on track. How many? I'm on track, you guys. I don't know about you. What is that? In cow terms, I don't know how many cows that is. Fourteen point six. I would say that's like a a tenth of a cow. Because what are they like? Two thousand pounds, probably. It's not all meat, though. Yeah, it's not all meat. I'm sure. But the Impossible Foods thing too is when you make beef. There's a lot of of health things that come along with with beef in in the store right now. Mm -hmm. Like not only antibiotics and hormones that are pumped into a lot Mm -hmm. of these cows, but uh, you referenced a 2015 Consumer Reports study where they looked at. 458 pounds of ground beef from like over 100 different grocery stores, including natural food stores. And out of those 458 pounds, 100% of them contained fecal matter. Uh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe that's the, the missing ingredient. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it Just is, a dash. Yeah, that'll make it 100%. It is revolting. But I guess working at the science magazine long enough now, I've just like grown to assume that I am eating feces most of the time breathing it in breathing in yeah, it's, it's people's everywhere. skin yeah like non-stop there's bugs crawling all over us mm-hmm. yeah We're eating i've just i've grown resigned to the fact that i eat shit every day <laughs> that's the corporate culture getting you down man <laughs> maybe you need to talk some more economics yeah. well i say we keep this uh this thing going and i'm looking at you bill some would argue that eating less meat is a very intelligent thing to do, not only for the planet, but for your own health. Mm. Um, but do you anticipate future generations continually making more and more intelligent decisions, or is that just a logical fallacy, or what's going on? Are we getting smarter as time goes on? Well, one would hope, right? At the very least, you would think, okay, you know, we've got more experience, the scientists know more, the books are fatter, the history books... The- we had a wheel, and now we have almost flying oh, cars. Yeah, so, you know. I mean, it gets better and better rollerblades you can have eight wheels at once it's crazy <laughs> so the trends are obvious right and it turns out that if you look at specifically this comes from iq scores the trend is very clear so the deal with iq scores even though they have a lot of issues with they don't really strictly measure intelligence and some people say they just measure iq and that that's just an abstract and thing it's, it relies too much on your age too for like age, the, the, the score your, itself your socioeconomic background plays an uncomfortably big role but all those issues aside, it is some measure related to general intelligence a little bit. And the the good thing about it is it goes back for decades. They've been having IQ scores and IQ tests for uh, almost a century. And the deal with them is that 100 is supposed to be chosen to be the average and the mean. That's the, the regular guy or gal is going to have an IQ of 100 with a standard deviation of like 15 or 16 points. But over time, right, you got to make sure that your test is still spitting out answers so that 100 is the average. So whenever they've gone to uh, recalibrate these things, they notice that they the trend is always in one direction. It's going up. Smarter. They, yeah, people are getting smarter. So when they, when they redid the IQ tests, they had the people that got 100 now take the old ones, and they got much higher scores on the old tests. And that's a trend that, that is nearly universal across all cultures, across time as far as they've been studying IQ tests and they have these measurements. And it's been called the Flynn effect after uh, New Zealand scientist James R. Flynn, who helped. How does he get credit for everybody getting smarter? He's the one who, who kind of had people pay attention to it. He didn't like discover it himself. I mean, there was a lot of people noticed it, but he's the one who, who figured, hey, this is a thing that we should pay attention to. What's going on here? 
Is it really a thing that's happening? And as far as people can tell, it really is a thing. Still, to this day, people are getting smarter as far as IQ tests and other tests are concerned. So it started with the IQ test, but other measures of uh, different types of intelligence, they like to say um, fluid and crystallized intelligence, all point to people over time getting smarter and smarter. And in a way, like I said, that makes sense too, right? Because that's cool. You know, we've got bigger books and we know more. But also it kind of flies in the face of like, you know, people are just people. It's not like our ancestors were dummies. You know, something's got to be going on here. Yeah, our brains aren't like getting bigger. <laughs> right, like, exactly. And if popular culture, years, like... popular yeah. culture is any indication, you know, the smart people aren't necessarily the ones we're best at reproducing. And we said That's earlier, true. sort of alluded to earlier, people tend to repeat the same mistakes. You see history repeat itself over yeah. and over again. There's a lot of very human problems that we're just attracted to. But by that reasoning, so if Einstein were born today, like he would be that if, much smarter than for, he was. Perhaps if you were going by the trends. He'd be he Elon be. Musk's like yeah. uh, <laughs> helper or assistant. <laughs> oh man, yeah. It would be a different story. So they've tried to look into what you know, why why could this be showing up in the tests? And they've got some theories, I mean, some, some hypotheses, I should say. One idea being that more people over time are exposed to schooling and are getting better taking tests. So as the, you know, the educator population goes up, of course, the average IQ will go up. Okay, sure. But even if they control for that in, in different studies and cultures, it's still, the trend doesn't go away completely. So that, that can't be the whole story. They say perhaps the increasingly novel environments that people find themselves in leads to more stimulation of the brain. So the idea of like, now thanks to YouTube, we've seen and been exposed to things that our grandparents would never have seen at our ages. Unless, that is the truth, I've seen uh, yeah. some stuff. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. We, we all have. <laughs> seen some stuff. We can all go down that rabbit hole. So, and and the more you experience, the more diverse your, your experiences, the different, you know, the more it stimulates your brain. So there's something to that too, but again, it isn't the entire thing. It's one of the bigger possible answers is just health in general is a lot better. If the human body doesn't have to worry about fighting off, you know, malaria and and polio and all the other diseases, it can spend more of its natural resources building up the brain and uh, improving memory and cognition and all these things. And even more so, nutrition has improved tremendously in the last century or so across the world. Uh, it, in 1900, they didn't even really know what vitamins were. You know, people were figuring all that stuff out fairly recently. So now that everyone understands what it takes to make a healthy body, of course, that means that more healthy people are going to have healthier brains. It's going to be a healthier effect. And that's why in, they think in some places they have noticed the Flynn effect start to taper off. So in some cultures where people are all, already as healthy as they're going to get, say, oh. then it's not really rising as much as, as it used to. And in cultures that are, um, we might say, the most... Uh, Eat too much beef. Among other things. <laughs> the lowest rung cultures that have to put up with wars and everything, they see the most uh, stark gains in the Flynn effect because they kind of have the biggest, you know, the m more up you can most go. Most room to improve. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's interesting to think about, not just in terms of scientifically in the numbers, but also if you've been to college recently, if you've had the, the excruciating uh, experience of writing those essays and then sending them in and wondering... You know that's not a great time, but it seems to be getting worse and worse because there's more people, more folks want to go to college. Perhaps that means that the degree itself is getting to be less important. Again, it all comes back to economics with the supply and demand. But I thought to compare 
just kind of a casual, maybe inference of the Flynn effect, I would read to you guys the entirety of John F. Kennedy's mm. application, his essay application to Harvard. Okay. Harvard University. Right. The Harvard University. That's right. Not like Joe's Harvard. 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 Harvard University School Online. That's right. The, the real deal. So this is it. You can, you can imagine the Kennedy accent overlaid here. I can't do it this long. <laughs> the reasons that I have for wishing to go to Harvard are several. I feel that Harvard can give me a better background and a better liberal education than any other university. I have always wanted to go there as I have felt that it is not just another college, but is a university with something definite to offer. Then, too, I would like to go to the same college as my father. To be a Harvard man is an enviable distinction and one that I sincerely hope I shall attain. April 23rd, 1935, John F. Kennedy. Get this man a scholarship. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. That's like that's what you write on the email yeah. that like has your letter attached to it these days. I feel like if you're at Kennedy, though, that might tip well, the scale yes. a little bit. Yeah. That's always a part yeah, of this, too. Is that part of it, too. it isn't really attached like they paid a, attention. a million dollar donation. And there were grades and there were other things. I don't think he took an SAT, but, you know, still. Come on. Can you imagine mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. even even if your your parents are the president and Mrs. President or whatever, you can't get away with an essay like that to get into Harvard. No. Yeah, I, mean, I, I should hope that. <laughs> I mean, students are like killing themselves to be like one sport athletes Literally to sometimes. be in as many clubs and volunteer and to like have a. I think to get into Harvard now, you have to almost be like if you're going to get into the business school, you have to have started a business before you even go there now. Several, I think. Yeah, I, I knew a lot of people who were valedictorians turned down perfect SAT scores, turned down started businesses that made money turned down you know it's very very tough to get in but in 1935 apparently we were all born too late unfortunately perhaps perhaps it's said it over and over could have all been harvard men i should have been born in the 50s you know (laughs) makes me want to look at some other essays from the 30s yeah it makes (laughs) you think right and i'm not casting aspersions on john f kennedy i mean he was fine you know he was a decent president and he, he was smart I mean, but, with doctors back in in his time or that time, like if you had an operation, they'd throw a cigarette in your mouth and say, "Here you go, you made it." Like if you twitched too much, they'd cut your brain up you know, <laughs> through your eyeball. Like it was a weird time, right? And so, I mean, it's just it's just a very stark. Like standards were different back then, mm-hmm. and even now, I would hate to get into school now with my grades and you know education level and tests and everything. Just. In 2000, I was a freshman in college, and now this everything is stricter. It's harder to get in everywhere. It's tougher. People have more anxiety. Like, oh, I hope something changes somehow. But perhaps this is all just another manifestation of the Flynn effect, this kind of academic arms race that everybody's going to more and more people are healthy, more people exist, more people know more stuff to begin with. So, so we've got it. We got getting close to the point where it tapers out then. Has there been any sign of like a reversion of the curve on the the Flynn effect where we start getting dumber as we go along? I didn't see anything to suggest that as much as certain Other than just what's happening right now. Yes, exactly. Might suggest it. Outliers, perhaps. (laughs) We hope. But we can't scientifically say that. That's right. There's not enough data to establish a trend, we could say. Well, Nate, we are in the home stretch now, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about what we have been doing online every Friday with uh, an homage to one of our, our favorite science ambassadors. Indeed, and and while 
we may be getting progressively better throughout generations. I think there'll probably only be one David Attenborough. Mm. Oh, yeah. David Attenborough. That's right. For the past, it was like six weeks or so. What, six weeks? Yeah, that's pretty consistent for us. I can't even remember myself. Uh, I've been watching all of his documentaries. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them. Um, I've been writing uh, a weekly series on Friday about David Attenborough, and it came when I noticed that there's tons of species named after David Attenborough. Well over a dozen. You know, to to have a species named after you can can be a crowning achievement in in a researcher's life. This is just like he gets a letter in the mail like every other month. Like, oh, here's a beetle. It's named after you. (laughs) Throw it on the pile. Yeah. All right. So it's it's a big honor, though. But David Attenborough has gotten so, so many of these. And for, for reasons that are pretty obvious. I mean, I think we've probably all seen Planet Earth or any one of the, the life series mm-hmm. that he's put together over the past, you know, 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. He's, he's probably one of the most well-known broadcasters in the world, and he's staked his claim on introducing us to the wonders of Planet Earth and specifically the life that inhabits it. And uh, it's been fun for me because it's a, it's a pretty broad, diverse sampling of the, the biodiversity. It is. It's all over the place. On our, the, I mean, there's, there's plants, there's animals, there's insects, there's what are s- fossils. So you're going through all of the species that are named after him, basically. Exactly. And and some, a little bit of history some and... genera as well. He's got whole genuses oh, man. named yeah. after him. Species in some cases. isn't enough for him. No. He needs a whole branch, you know, like... <laughs> like there's um, animals, there's and life. then there's animals. Animals, fungi. Standing head Plants. and shoulders above the rest. <laughs> Uh, well, I wrote about this one last week. It's uh, Henochiloides attenboroughi. It's it's a ghost shrimp. Attenborough's ghost shrimp is what mm-hmm. you know is what we can call it colloquially. Pretty rare, actually. We've only ever found one of them. Oh, uh, it was. I guess if we're just ghosted yeah. us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Might, might as well be. It was found off the coast of Madagascar in a bay surrounded by mangrove trees. Well, they're known as ghost shrimp because they're translucent. You can see right through them. There's only one individual known. It's never really been observed. Yeah, I see. You have a, an the illustration wild. there. Not a yeah, I couldn't even get this. Well, there's a picture, but we don't have the rights to it, unfortunately. <laughs> so I, I substituted an illustration. BBC, come on. Exactly, yeah. Go online, follow the link. You can, you can what about this one there. I see on the desk here that's like a... Oh, this is a fun one, man. Pitcher plant? Yeah, it's Attenborough's pitcher plant, Nepenthes Attenborough-I. Okay. And uh, it's found on just one mountain, a single mountain. In... Attenborough's mountain. I wish. That would be Someday. Perfect. Someday. To get a mountain named after you is an even... That's pretty good. I can see that coming. An even higher honor. Literally. Literally. Uh, <laughs> we've peaked, Carl. Like all pitcher plants, it uh, it has it's basically a large bell filled with a, a sticky solution filled with digestive fluids, and the, the leaves surrounding it are waxy and slippery. So insects, when they slip in, they can't, they can't manage to crawl back out, and they just get slowly digested over the course of about a couple weeks. This one is so big, in fact, that they found an entire shrew being digested in one of them. Ooh. What a way to go, huh? Yeah, slowly digested wow. by a plant, and you can, you know, looking up at the blue sky, oh, unable to escape. So close, you so close, but so far. It's like something out of Star Wars. Oof. What was the name? What was the the scientific name of that beast? I have been trying to think of it this whole time, and I just can't. It's all mm-hmm. I can think is Rancor because that's the monster that Luke fights before. <laughs> but it's the stupid thing that looks like a giant vagina in the desert <laughs> that Boba Fett gets knocked into like a dumbass, and he's and I can't think of the name. I'm not the first to opine. It's it's on its, its vaginal qualities. It's, it's ionic references. Yes. Any more of these uh these creatures from Attenborough? Yeah, I guess. Attenborosaurus Coneyberry. Coneyberry. Attenborosaurus. Which which you can call an Attenborosaurus if you want. Uh, it was actually a marine reptile. Nice. 
do they have some connection to David Attenborough? Um, I think most of them are just don't, him? Like him. don't we yeah. all? We all have a connection all, with David Attenborough. Life. You know, yeah. he talks Ooh. about life. Are we not alive? We are all made from the same star stuff. It's, it's kind of related to the plesiosaurs. It's not, I'd say, a true plesiosaur, though. It is in the order plesiosaura. Of course. Mm-hmm. And it was actually it was actually called something else before. In uh, it was in 1993, the paleontologist Peter Backer took a good look at it and noticed that it was actually pretty different. It's a Degrassiosaur. <laughs> so blast from the past. Wow. <laughs> they used to call it a Jacques Cousteauosaur, but that was not. <laughs> now Attenborough blew it out. And who knows? I mean, give it ten years. Who knows what it'll be? But he decided that it deserved its own genus. And hmm. who better than David Attenborough? One thing that I do like about these posts too is that you you mix into some uh, David Attenborough trivia in each of these posts. So like fun facts about David Attenborough. A lot of that. Some of those are pretty good. Apropos of nothing, the bonus Attenborough fact of the week: uh, Sir David Attenborough once wrestled a wolf. Oh. Uh, There's a Facebook page dedicated to just his voice. It has over 150,000 likes. Wow. Uh, It's and it's not just species. Uh, you guys remember Bodie McBoatface? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's now called the RSS Sir David Attenborough. <laughs> That's pretty good. He beat up Bodie McBoatface. That would be my crowning achievement. It's the highest honor, indeed. According to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've we've come to the, the end of our program here, except for just one last thing that we need to do, one last bit of business to take care of, and that is, of course, we have to reach into the boredom bin and grab another boring topic to talk about for the next episode. And as gratitude for, for Allison bringing in lunch, I think I'll, I'll toss it over to Allison All right. <laughs> for introducing us to a juicy steak filled with heme. Yeah, now she gets to reach into the shark's mouth. Into the shark mouth. I hope meat is in there. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, like a, sounds good really sound. good. Yeah. Yeah, there's a battery in here. <laughs> oh, there's another battery? <laughs> batteries, yes. Who put batteries in there, It's a man. literal one. Other Book pe- bindings. <laughs> Wow, that has a rich history there. Do you do you know a lot about that as an as an I art actually, person? I actually took a class about books. There you go. <laughs> all right. I have book binding supplies. I can bring in that we can all wow. feel. Ooh, with that's show and tell. Man, cool. these things are on point. The shark knows who to give things to. Have we ever named the shark? No, we've never thought of a name for it. Maybe we should call him Attenborough. I think that's right. <laughs> I think we should call it Attenborough, the boredom bin shark. There we are. All right. I like it. I it's Attenborough. Well, we want to thank you all for for joining us and sticking with us to the very end. We hope you had a good time. Of course, as always, check us out on www.discovermagazine.com for the latest in science news. Check us out on newsstands, of course, too. Um, And if you like what you buy on newsstands, subscribe to us. Um, We also run a science shop. We have tons of cool science gifts. Uh, I think we got, like, a meteorite starter kit. We've got a couple board games, like uh, putting together, like, peptide chains and things like that we also have of course the the heroes of science puzzle mm-hmm. so Puzzles check out posters and flashcards all yeah kinds of fun things. check out my science shop.com uh we're going to be expanding our inventory we hope to have a lot more there and of course stay tuned for our next episode which we hope to serve up pretty soon we'll talk to you next time bye bye later